You may be seated. So for those of you who are guests with us today, we are currently working our way through a sermon series on the Nicene Creed, which we all just used to confess our faith, and today the section of the Creed that we're going to explore is, I believe in the Holy Spirit, who has spoken through the prophets. A couple of texts from Peter's letters. First, his first letter, chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so, the test, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And from the first chapter of his second letter, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, were, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have, I'm going to change the translation here slightly, and we have made more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And we ask you, Lord, to work by your Spirit as we hear this word now in Jesus' good name. Amen. Can you imagine somebody off the street coming in here and hearing us say, I believe the Holy Spirit has spoken through the prophets. I mean, first of all, you'll, you actually believe there's a spirit. So we could just start, that's weird. And you believe this spirit is holy, whatever that means. And you think this spirit speaks. And you think this spirit speaks in a way that you can understand. And he speaks through prophets, through people. And so somehow we're supposed to believe that what these people say, this Holy Spirit is saying. And you think the result of all that is this book you call the Bible? What's not to believe about that? You guys are crazy. You're crazy. How do you account for this? You stand here every Sunday and you say, I believe the Holy Spirit has spoken through the prophets. How do you account for that to the person who comes in off the street, our friend off the street? 
How do you account for that even to your own children, who undoubtedly, if they're intelligent children, are at some point going to be like, why do we believe this? The modern mind suffers from reality shrink. Because it's just understood by the people who understand that what you can see is real, and what you feel is real. And that's what's real. The stuff you can see, the stuff you feel. And that is all the reality you need. I mean, people can have their sort of religious fantasies about something more than that, but the reality is, given what it, you can see in the visible world and what you feel and kind of discover inside yourself, that's all the reality you need to have a happy, healthy, meaningful, even moral life. That's the modern mind, a real, a real case of reality shrink. And it, it's kind of like somebody who is looking through a microscope. And this is all they look through, and they just keep looking through this microscope, and they're looking at what is they can see through the microscope, and they're like, this is just so real. This is what matters. This is it. This is reality. And they're just stuck on that. And they think that is somehow all there is, because it's what they're looking at through the microscope. And the very idea for such a person, that there could be things that you can see only through a telescope, let's say. There could be other realities you have to see a different way that is just nonsense to them because they're already committed to microscopism, right? That's kind of how the modern mind is. It kind of has a case of, case of microscopism. Now, we as Christians, obviously, we reject that belief system because that's what it is. We reject that belief system that supports this reality shrink. As Christians, you and I do believe in the world of sight. We absolutely believe in the world that you can see, and we believe in the world of the self. Humans are very complicated little worlds, and the world of feelings, and all the psychological stuff that goes on. We believe in all of that, and we also believe in realities that are beyond sight and beyond the self. And part of the reason why we are free to believe in all of that unapologetically is because we understand that you learn about different kinds of reality in different ways. I mean, if it's the natural world we're talking about, how do you learn about that? Well, you learn about that through observation. But when you're in the realm of supernatural things, the realm of God's reality, let's say, you don't, you don't learn about this through observation. Here you're confronted with something very, very different. You're confronted by revelation. See, matter and energy and the things of the natural world, you go to them and you observe them and you kind of act upon them as you study them. But when you're in the realm of supernatural things, see, matter and energy don't talk, they don't speak, they don't reveal. God has spoken. God has spoken. Now, I want to take a moment and I want to just ask a very broad question. What on earth are we actually talking about here when we say God has spoken through the prophets. Now let's imagine our friend coming in off the street. The very first question this person might ask if we say these words, friend, we believe the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit has spoken through the prophets. What's the very first thing they're likely to ask? Well, in some form, I think they'd want us to explain that. How do you know God spoke through the, God has spoken through anybody? I mean, set aside what a prophet is even for now. God speaks through people. How do you, how do you know that, that God speaks and has spoken through people? Well, we could give a very simple answer to that, couldn't we? The Bible says he, 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 that's what the Bible says. I mean, we just read it, the very last verse in your text there. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we could say, well, we believe that 
God spoke through the prophets because the Bible says. Well, what's their next question? This friend off the street. What's the obvious next question? We believe God spoke through the prophets because the Bible tells us that. What's the next question? Why do you believe the Bible? And you know the thing we're going to end up saying? Well, we believe the Bible because we believe that God spoke through people. And our friend is going to say, oh, wait a minute here. Uh, you know, I didn't study logic in any formal way, but that seems like you pulled a little tricksy thing there because what you're saying is, you Christians, you believe that God spoke through people because the Bible says that, and you believe what the Bible says because you believe that God spoke through people. So it kind of sounds to me like you're saying, I believe A because I believe B, and the reason I believe that B is because I believe A, and I think that's called a circle. That doesn't make sense. You're making that up. And at first, that argument, which I'm sure you've encountered in some form many times, you feel like you're kind of going in a circle with some of these things, that seemingly intimidating argument misses something very crucial about personal communications. We can see this in the realm of human personal communications. If you receive a communication, we could call it a revelation, from person X, maybe you get a letter Maybe you find a book they've written. Maybe they send a verbal message to you through somebody else. If you think about these kinds of scenarios, you'll realize that there are some times when the only way to know that this communication is from X is to actually hear what X said in the communication. It is only by receiving what X said to you that you eventually become sure that it was X who said it. Or to say that another way, in some communications you realize that it is what is in this communication that prepares you to say what this communication is. I can illustrate this. In 1813, there was a, a little baby girl born into slavery in North Carolina. Her name was Harriet Jacobs. And she, some 40 years later, after she escaped from slavery, she wrote an autobiography called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Now, if you pick up a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by, ostensibly, by Harriet Jacobs, who was a slave, there's a, an enormous probability that this is a hoax. Why? Because slaves were not taught to read and write. So the idea that they could produce an autobiography, initially there's a question like, I don't think this is authentic. I don't think this is really, I don't think Harriet Jacobs is speaking through this book. But when you get into that autobiography, what is in that story includes an account of how this young girl learned in slavery to read and to write. And so what is in Harriet Jacobs' story prepares us to say that this is in fact her story that we might even say it this way, Harriet Jacobs has spoken through this autobiography. And in a very similar way, it is as you and I hear what God has said in the Bible, what God has spoken through the prophets, that we eventually come to see with conviction that what these prophets spoke and eventually wrote, it is really, truly the word of God. It is just what God would say. One way of thinking about this, it is in hearing God's voice that his voice becomes recognizable as his voice. You're not going to go away from God's voice and verify this is God's voice. You must hear his voice, receive his revelation, until at some point you realize, yes, this is in fact the word of the living God. It is what is in the Bible 
that prepares us to say very confidently eventually what the Bible is. And so I want to ask today, what does the Bible in fact say that God said? Let's just step into this revelation and be addressed by it. Because one of the stranger things in all the Bible is in the very opening chapters. This is so very strange because as soon as God has created people, what we see is God bonding with his creatures through words. Now this is crazy. He just spoke these creatures into existence. <laughs> these are, one of these is not like the other. A God who can speak stuff into existence is not on the same plane as those who have been spoken into existence. There is no reason whatsoever for a God who has that kind of power and wisdom and glory and majesty, you can just speak stuff into existence to be talking with these tiny little things he has made. But he does, and he speaks to them intelligibly. He speaks to them in words they can understand. I don't know what languages God speaks. <laughs> you know, what does divine speech, what, what language you know, it goes on in the Godhead? You know, it's, it's beyond imagination. And yet God chooses to talk to us in words that we can understand. And he speaks to his creatures so lovingly. I, I often just am, am, my heart is warmed by that opening, the opening of God's relationship with his creatures, it says God blessed them. I mean, I don't want to be kind of cheesy about this, but it's kind of like God just saying, you're good. It's good that you exist. I love you. I favor you. You bring, there is joy in seeing you. That's blessing. And with his human creatures, he instructs, these are his children, they, he is their father, and he instructs them in what they were made for, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So God is present, and his presence is communicative. There's an almost awkward intimacy here, like what is God doing talking this way? Now, there is, of course, in, that, in those early chapters, there is this possibility, isn't there, that the human, human beings might stop their ears and say, we don't want to, you know, la, 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 we don't want to hear God. We want to try to be wise, we want to be like God, apart from God. We want God to stop talking, we just want to kind of figure this out on our own, and so that is exactly what happens, and they rebel against him, they, they break his commandment. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you just stay with me, and they rebel. And the love bond that God has established between himself and us, that love bond is shattered, and it's shattered from our side. It's not shattered from God's side, it's shattered from our side, but then there's something that is utterly unexpected in that moment of rebellion. I don't think I can put this any more wonderfully than John Webster does. He says, sin, rebellion, quote, does not put an end to the workings of God's communicative goodness, but intensifies these divine operations as they now take the form, the social form, of reconciling instruction. So sin does not put an end to God's talkativeness, but now God's talk, his speech, takes the social form, the relational form, of reconciling instruction. And you know this story, I think, pretty well. It is now the case that God and man can't live together anymore. They, they cannot dwell together in love. But before they part ways, God speaks and he gives a promise to Adam and Eve. And he tells them that in time, through the work of a suffering Savior King, who will crush this serpent who led them astray and will bring them back. He will be injured in that work, but he will crush the serpent. 
And God promises that through, the, through that Savior King to come, we will live together again. We'll be back together again. That love bond will be restored. And so there's no prophet yet, but there's this promise. And those who believe that promise and hold on to that promise, they are under the grace of God, even, they, even though they don't live with him anymore. Now, in the following centuries, as time now starts to move on, there's always this line of people in the Bible who believe that promise that God made. And what is interesting to watch in their story is how God will occasionally come and visit them. He will, as it were, drop in to their lives. And as he does that, on a number of occasions, he will renew his promise, and in a number of cases, he will expand on his promise. So we get more information about this wonderful promise of what's coming with this Savior King. And eventually, of course, you know, he calls this guy named Abraham, and he tells this man, Abraham, that his family... Out of all the families of the earth, his family is going to become a great nation, and it is from that great nation that God is going to call forth this promised Savior King. But what is interesting to notice in all of these visits is that when God comes, eventually, the visit is quite short, he stops speaking, and he leaves. God's communicative presence with his people all through these centuries, it is temporary, it is fleeting, until a guy named Moses. Now we have a prophet. And not just a prophet. Moses is the prophet. <laughs> he is, you know, God spoke through Moses. Moses says, thus says the Lord. That is his message. Why does God send Moses, this mighty prophet, now? Listen carefully. God sends a prophet now because God's presence is about to come back to his people. God's presence is about to return. You know, we like to read the early chapters of Exodus because it's this exciting story of Moses coming out of the wilderness and he says to Pharaoh, like the great you know, king uh, who, under whom Israel is enslaved, you know, Moses thunders, let my people go, and he starts, you know, blasting Egypt with plagues. And it's very exciting, and they make movies out of this kind of thing, and it's wonderful to read. And we're all asleep by mid-Exodus because the book goes on to describe the building of this big tent, and there's all these details, and we're just like yawning our way through that. But when you think about it, that Exodus story of God breaking his people out of slavery, that is really just a prelude. It's really just kind of a, a first step toward what the whole point of this story is, which is God is going to bring all these people out of slavery to a mountain called Sinai, and he is going to announce there that I am now covenanted with you. I have now reestablished the love bond between me and and man. We are going to live together. We're going to share life. This has not happened since the Garden of Eden. And this is far more intense communication than the sort of drop-in visits in the past. God spells out in this covenant from Sinai, he spells out the terms of God's life with man and man's life with God. Like, look, this is how it has to be. This is not just going to be a simple relationship. This is, this, is, this is the holy God of heaven living with sinners on earth. This is intense. And God spells all of that out. And it is so intense, this word. And, and God is just dropping on Israel this vastly increased intimacy. Like God is not visiting anymore. He's home. He's here to stay. That is so intense that we need a mediator. We, we kind of need a buffer Israel hears this word from Sinai and it's kind of like, listen, Moses, can you talk to God and then come talk to us? And that is the function in that story of the prophet. 
on one hand, the prophet does represent God to the people, and, and Moses, in a way, he, even physically, he kind of pictures the blazing glory, the blazing set-apartness of the God of the covenant. I mean, you know, Moses comes from the wilderness. He comes from outside the people. He's up there on the mountain. Like, he's not just a chum. He speaks for God, and so, but he's a mediator, and he relieves, by him coming to speak to Israel, he relieves the fearful pressure of that direct contact with God's communicative presence. The Israelites plead, like, we can't hear, we can't bear the sound anymore of this voice, and Moses comes as the prophet to speak. But he has another function as God's prophet. God also wants him to take all of God's communications throughout history up until this point and take all those communications and put them in permanent form. This isn't just grandpa telling stories around the campfire anymore. Moses is the first writing prophet and he writes these five books. And these five books, going all the way back to creation and the Abraham story and now all the way through to Moses' uh, time when Israel's right up to the edge of the land God promised, all of that, this revelation through Moses, this becomes the standard, the gold standard, all of God's subsequent revelations to his people. All future words need to be checked against this, these books of Moses. And if a prophet comes along in the future and he says stuff that contradicts Moses, he's a false prophet. And true prophets from now on are going to be faithfully calling Israel back to their covenant with the God of Sinai. And so as you go on in the story, you notice that God's words after this through prophets, and there are lots of prophets, God's words now, through the prophets, tend to be not so much big new revelations, like not some huge new thing we've never heard before. The prophets generally are exhorting Israel to be faithful to God's covenant, or they are prosecuting Israel for being unfaithful. They're either saying, you know, be faithful to your God, or they're saying you have not been faithful to God. But they're pointing back to the covenant. But eventually, Israel's sinfulness and the sin of Israel's kings. I could preach a whole other sermon, I will certainly not, about how there's a second wave of prophets who show up when God is gonna give Israel a king. Uh, Samuel is, is the big prophet of that time, and, and this, the prophets are kingmakers because the kings need to listen to God. There's a high king and you're not it. And that's a whole thing. But over the history of Israel, their sin as a people and the sin of their kings, just like Adam's sin, eventually ruptures this covenant. It breaks the covenant and God's glory departs, and Israel, much like Adam and Eve, they are thrown out of this garden of the promised land, and we have what is called the exile. In 722 BC, the northern part of Israel is taken off by the Assyrians into exile. In 586 BC, the southern part taken by the Babylonians into exile, and it's in this exile context where we're now out of the garden again. Like the covenant's broken, we're out of the garden again. It is in that exile context that God sends the last wave of prophets. And these prophets are different because they do, they do still look back to Moses and the Sinai covenant. But they start to acknowledge that that has run its course and they start turning to the future, looking ahead to something else. And you have just glorious visions now of the arrival, and you get the sense it's probably coming sooner rather than later, the arrival finally of this savior king. And we're told explicitly that when that savior king comes, God is going to establish a new covenant with his people. He is finally going to take away the sin 
that has separated sinners from him. And there's this wonderful promise that when God takes away the sin of his people, he's going to open up direct knowledge of himself because he's going to take his law and by his Holy Spirit, he's going to write it in the hearts of these people so they will know him directly. God's people in those days, they're going to enjoy God's communicative presence with them in a way that it used to be only the prophets enjoyed. I'll put my law right in your heart and you will all know me without the necessity of a prophet to mediate. Now, Peter tells us in that text from his first letter that as the prophets are prophesying about this grace that is to come, they didn't know exactly who this would be or when this would be, and yet Peter tells us that the Spirit of God, who eventually would fill the Messiah when he came, the Savior King, that Spirit that eventually filled the Savior, that Spirit was indicating in these prophets the sufferings of that Savior King and the glories that he would eventually enter into through his suffering. And what we notice in this last wave of prophets is that for the very first time since Moses, these are writing prophets. The Spirit moving in them to write about the Savior King, his sufferings, his glories, that Spirit moved them to write this down. Moses wrote the first covenant. These prophets write about this new covenant to come. We need to get this permanent for God's people because now Moses and the prophets are this full permanent written revelation preparing God's people for what he is going to say in the last days through whom? This is the opening verses of the book of Hebrews. God, having spoken in various ways at various times, through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through his son. And it's interesting in this second, this second text we read from Peter's second letter, that when, when Peter wants to assure his readers, now after Jesus, that what they have heard about Jesus and what they believed about Jesus is not a clever myth, which is what you all are still wondering sometimes. Like, are we just believing some sort of clever myth? And, and Peter wants them to know, no, what you've heard and believed about Jesus is not a clever myth, But the way that he confirms that for his readers is that he recalls something he personally witnessed. We know it as the transfiguration. You guys might remember that story in the Gospels, and Peter was there. Jesus is up on top of, interestingly, a mountain. And Peter and James and John are the only disciples who are with him. And Jesus is there, and all of a sudden, there is this moment when Jesus starts to radiate devastatingly brilliant light. He shines like the sun. And in that moment, I don't know how they recognize them, but Moses shows up and stands before him, and Elijah, representing the prophets, stands before him, and suddenly a cloud comes down on this mountain, and there is sound, and there is a voice, and that voice thunders from the top of the mountain. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You all need to be listening to him. Peter saw that. And if there is any doubt that Jesus is the one who fulfills everything written in Moses and the prophets, if there's any doubt about that, this scene removes that doubt. Moses is pointing to him. Elijah and the prophets were pointing to him. 
and he blazes with the glory of the God of the covenant. And Peter tells us here that that thing that he saw, Jesus is the God of the covenant. He is the one, he is the true prophet to whom God is now speaking. Y'all listen to him. Peter says that what we saw on that mountain makes the prophetic word more sure. We, verse 19, have now made more sure the prophetic word to which you would do well to heed like a lamp shining in a dark place. You should listen to the prophetic word. You should heed the prophets, both because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and if God is moving people to speak for him, then you should listen to them, and you should also listen to them because our eyewitness testimony as Jesus' apostles our eyewitness testimony, what we have seen and heard and touched with this Jesus, it confirms what those prophets foretold. You guys have such a multitude of witnesses that you're not crazy to believe in Jesus. And it's true, you know, Jesus, after that mountain moment, having then eventually done everything that was prophesied that the suffering servant, uh, the Savior King, would do, he took away the sin barrier that separates God and man. Finally, he, he, he took that sword of the cherubim that stood at the entrance of Eden after Adam and Eve were driven, driven out. They could not go back into God's presence, and as if Jesus took that sword and he sheathed it in himself. And the angel stepped aside, and when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was able to bring us into that presence of God once again. He opened up the Father's presence. Having done that, it's interesting, Jesus did not leave any scriptures of his own. You ever puzzled over this? Jesus never wrote anything. That he was least, at least that we still have, but rather he sent forth his spirit, right, to do through his apostles now what that spirit did in the prophets before them, and the apostles now bear witness to what has now been completed. The prophets look forward to it, and the, and the apostles say, it's done. The work is done. Let, let us explain to you in much more detail who Jesus was in the gospels, what he did and, and spell that out in, in like, you know, the letters of Paul and John and so on. And they, interestingly, they are writers. The Spirit moves in these men to not only speak, but to write and to record in permanent form the Word of God so that now God's people, you sitting here today, and God's people through all the ages to come in the church, we have Moses and we have the prophets and we have the apostles writing so we can know the fullness of this great salvation that God has accomplished for us what Peter calls our living hope. God has spoken through the prophets. Now, I want to ask as we turn to the end, what does this demand of us? What does this demand of us? God has spoken through the prophets. To those who walk with God from the earliest pages of his word until the very end, I will challenge anybody on this there simply can be no question about the authenticity of this word. If you do not believe that, you have not read it with an open heart to the word of the Lord. There can be no doubt of the authority of this word. The authority of what God has spoken through the prophets now inscribed in the Holy Scriptures. This is an astonishing revelation of God's love. God's determination from the very first sin, not simply that we will be with him, but we will know him, that you will know his mind. You, puny little creatures, 
I, a nothing, dust and ashes, will know the mind and the heart of God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. God is determined that shall be so. They will know me from the least to the greatest. Because it is in knowing God that we will experience our highest blessedness. You all are tempted to think that if you have a ton of money and lots of sex and pleasures of all kinds and everything money can buy, that's blessedness. To know God is blessedness. To know God is blessedness. This is love. Now that said, while the word of the Lord is so deeply comforting, beloved, you know it's not comfortable. The word of the Lord is not comfortable. We must face every day, whether you take up your Bible or not, it is a reality. God is speaking to you. God is speaking to me. That already sets him apart, doesn't it, from the mute idols of the pagans of old. It also sets this God apart from the God, the so-called God of popular religion today that C.S. Lewis describes so well. You know, for us, you know, God in the modern world, what is he? Well, he's kind of this higher power we can tap into when we feel like we kind of need him. And Lewis described this false God well. He said the God of popular religion does nothing, demands nothing. He's there if you wish for him like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. But God is speaking and he is pursuing through his word. We are being addressed. From the very first lines of the Bible, it's not man's search for God. It is God's quest for man. Yes? That's the difference between popular religion today and the true religion. God is seeking a people. Who will not seek him? Yet he will still have them. And he speaks. And this absurd notion you get in, you know, college Bible, you know, religion classes that somehow, well, the book is just a bunch of human documents written by just humans. And they said it was God's word, but it was really just, you know, human creation. Or, the, you know, the other way we treat the Bible, maybe a little bit more, a little bit more religiously, we kind of treat it as this, you know, collection of inspirational feel-good texts. I kind of need my coffee and my Bible verse in the morning so I can feel better about myself. All of these are simply ways of evading the authoritative word of the Lord. God is speaking. Now, what does he say? To us as his people, he authoritatively says these things. This is who you are. That's identity. You are children of God through what Jesus has accomplished. That is the word of the Lord. This is who you are, identity. Second thing he says, this is what I expect because of who you are. That's instruction. God says, your plan for your life is now my plan for your life because you're my children. This is what I expect. You trust me. You worship me. You obey me. You serve me. You be on mission with me. You be a part of my kingdom work in the world because you're my children. And beloved, that word of the Lord, it will rattle your values 
It'll rattle your priorities. It'll rattle your standards. It'll rattle your loves. Abraham Joshua Heschel, a wonderful Jewish commentator on the prophets, he says, the prophet is an assaulter of the mind. And then he says this piercing sentence. He says, often the prophet's words begin to burn where conscience ends. See, you know, Luke said it well earlier. I have a certain sense of what's normal for Ben Miller, and it is where my conscience has stopped speaking anymore that the word of the prophet burns. And things that I take for granted as completely normal in this world, the prophets rage against those things. The pride, the, 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 the greed, the oppression, the, 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 the breezy assumption that we are so powerful and, and that if we just have more of what you know, creation can offer, we'll be fine, and we can ignore God, and God just, he is, God assaults the mind through the word of his prophets. The word of God often rips like a two-edged sword into what we find normal, and God says, no, because you're my children, this is what I expect, and I will give you the power to do it because I'll put my spirit in you, and he will write my law on your heart. This is who you are. This is what I expect, and third thing that God says through his word authoritatively This is what you can expect in light of who you are. And that's our inheritance. Identity, instruction, inheritance. The living hope, which eye has not seen, ear has not heard. You will never follow God and be disappointed. You will never lose in surrendering your life to the Almighty. This is what you can expect because Jesus won it for you. You will rule my kingdom because you are my children. Oh, my word, I almost fell off my chair this week when I read this sentence from John Webster. He said, in light of everything I've just said, he said, reading scripture is an extension of baptism. (laughs) Reading scripture is an extension of baptism. And when that reading is accompanied by prayer, it is an activity in the sphere of God's promise. God beneath me in baptism. God with me in the word, God before me in his promises. And so little wonder, Peter says, we would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Amen. Fill us with love for your word, O Lord our God, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.